at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit and today I have a guest who is very very far away geographically but is very connected with Canada so it's, it's a great pleasure for me to be chatting today with Dr. Elizabeth Molloy. Welcome Elizabeth. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, can I call you Liz? Certainly, yep that'd be great. Perfect. Great. Liz is a professor at Work Integrated Learning Department of Medical Education at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and the Academic Director of Interprofessional Education and Practice. And we had the, the ple pleasure of having Liz visiting our research center a few years ago, and, and that was part of why I invited you, Liz, because I thought your stories were quite fascinating and I wanted to learn a little bit more. So to start, I was curious to know to know a little bit about you. Uh, who, who was Liz growing up? Um, who was Liz curious about when, when she was growing up? Okay, that, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, so my name's Liz. I'm uh, one of uh, three girls in my, my original family. Um, and I've, I've now got four daughters, so uh, lots of uh, <clears throat> lots of feminine uh, energy that I've grown up with. Um, but I mean, you know, interestingly, I think I've always been a very curious person. Um, I've been really interested in knowledge uh, and the world and what's beyond the world. Um, and, and I've always been very interested in reading and writing and stories. My mum was a librarian and, and loved children's literature. So uh, I think I've been brought up with books very early and, and wrote stories, um, you know, in my scrapbook from probably age seven or eight. Hmm. Interesting. Have, have you carried that with your daughters too? Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we love um, fiction. Um, we love movies. So, yeah, I think narratives have been a, a big part of my childhood and hopefully I'm passing that on to my girls. Oh, that's great. It's curious that it's interesting that you have so many women in, in your family. How do you think it has influenced you uh, to the person that you are today? Uh, yeah, so I think I've got two very strong older sisters and I'm, I'm the baby by six and eight years. So I think growing up around the dinner table, um, I was a real watcher and listener. Um, so I think there was a lot of um, vicarious learning, a lot of listening. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, you know, in, in terms of career, I, I started off as a physiotherapist. I was quite a, a sporty um, child and that's what I wanted to be when I was 16 or 17. Um, but I wonder whether my, my career as a, a writer and researcher is, gives me a voice um, when I was such a sort of silent um, child because of my family dynamic that that that's one one theory okay i see but it's, it's very intriguing that um you kind of grew up as the athlete and then you moved into health professions education and became a researcher like what do you think happened in there that make you maybe not switch but kind of find an alternative path 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. So when I was an athlete, I had a a coach uh, who was quite distinctive. He was, he had a photographic memory (gasps) and uh, and not particularly well-developed social skills. So what that meant from a feedback perspective, and that's what I've ended up studying is, is the concept of feedback. What that meant from a feedback perspective is that when I ran, he would then basically deliver what he saw almost like it was a videotape. Um, and he wasn't so worried about the way that that message came across. So I I was really raised on this feedback model that was very honest and very pointy and I could see the effect that it would have on my performance. And then when I when I enrolled in the physiotherapy degree um, here at Melbourne University, I was really interested that actually feedback in an educational institution had quite a different flavour. And that really piqued my interest around, you know, what is good feedback and what makes people able to engage in productive models of feedback so i you know once i graduated and and went out into practice i came back into the the academy and and said to a mentor i think i want to do a phd on feedback and Mm. and that was really the start of my research career what else have you noticed like being distinctive in the way people provide or receive feedback between your time as an athlete and now as a researcher in health professions education I think what is interesting, I suppose, when when you're getting feedback as an athlete, you're working with a coach and obviously you're both very invested in, mm. in getting return on that um, investment and, and, and improvement. And there's not a summative assessment component. Right. Whereas I suppose in medical education or health professions education, when it comes to feedback, it's there's a lot of um, stickiness and complexity. So. You know, for example, in the workplace, you've got the tension between service and learning and the fact that you've got busy clinicians that have got patient healthcare priorities in their mind and actually trying to orchestrate um, or cleave off time for a feedback conversation becomes quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, there are there are different cultures and, and obviously your colleague, Chris Watling, is, uh, is the king of, of looking at feedback culture. <laughs> you know, I think there's a a very distinctive um, yeah, tenor between the, the, the two feedback cultures and um, obviously both have a shared purpose around feedback to improve learning. Did you still uh, keep a, a toy in the, in the athlete world and life to this day? Uh, I di- I, so when I became a physiotherapist, I, um, I, I finished my athletic career, but I did mm. travel uh, with the um, Australian athletics team as the physiotherapist. Oh. So I did I did play in that world for a bit. And then uh, when I had children, I, I stepped out of clinical practice. And now I'm just a, not just a, but now I um, research and teach. Okay, I see. So I noticed when I was reading your bio that um, in addition to feedback, you also do research in assessment, interprofessional education, clinical supervision, like there is a whole range of um, areas that you're interested in. And I was wondering what has been, if at all, a, a topic or an area that has given you the most joy doing the research on? Okay, so the last two years, um, I've been particularly interested in a notion called intellectual candor. So I've been working on this with my colleague, Margaret Bierman, 
And this actually, the interest for me arose from the feedback research where we looked at conversations between learners and clinical educators and um, something quite mysterious happened that when educators were prepared to be vulnerable and take risks, then the learners tended to reciprocate. So there was this sense of uh, vulnerability, invites vulnerability. And that got us sort of thinking about this notion of um, bearing your uh, heart and mind and the sort of educational uh, value that that, that, that would reap. So, um, yeah, that, that's interested me and I suppose that um, that's in the context of coaching discussions or feedback discussions, but also um, in terms of teacher approaches. So um, how teachers would um, present within a classroom and how prepared they are to be vulnerable with their learners. That's an interesting concept. I read your paper and it's fascinating from the standpoint of the vulnerability and the credibility kind of balance that somebody has to achieve and I was wondering in your maybe in your professional life with students how has it influenced you in those interactions especially when people know that you're doing that kind of research it's a very good question I, I think uh, it, it makes you quite vulnerable when um, I suppose that you know you would hope that you're modeling the behaviors or the approaches that you're espousing mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a bit like, I think, whenever you're teaching a, teaching teachers about teaching, you think, oh, I better do this well. If I'm, if I'm teaching about active learning, I better not give a didactic lecture. Yeah. So I am, I am aware of that. And, and in a way, it does provide a sense of vulnerability in itself. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, I think I'm quite curious about um, my own teaching approach and am I prepared to take risks? And if I am being vulnerable, what's behind that? So um, I have, a, I suppose, a, a critical awareness of my teaching approaches and, and, and aware of when I shift gears. You know, I think when we think about this tension between vulnerability and credibility, mm -hmm. I know that there are times when I do put on my armour and try to present my best self because that's what the situation demands. Yeah. Um, and there are other times maybe when trust is, is established or... Um, there's a certain uh, atmosphere or expectation where I can, um, yeah, sort of be a little bit more fluid and a little bit more um, exposing of my inner thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I, I imagine that um, being in this environment of studying such a kind of personal reflective driven topic, um, there is also the opportunity to think about your mistakes. And I hope you will, won't cringe at this, at this question and we can get a conversation about it. But I was wondering what, what's the failure that you have felt most proud of in your career? Can you think of one? A failure? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I can think of many failures. I, um, I don't know about what I'm most proud of, but I, in terms of what I've learned most from, um, I, I had a, um, an interaction with a colleague some quite a few years ago and this, this colleague was performing very well and I think I'd given them very positive feedback and um, yeah, I, I'd sort of said, and, and I think for that reason, we, we can elevate you um, in terms of your pay, we can, we can up your step. Mm -hmm. And 
and I thought that was possible with HR and it turned out that it wasn't possible. And that colleague had a fantastic discussion with me about sort of that notion of over-promising and under-delivering. Mm. And, you know, I really took that on. Um, I felt terrible, but I, I really appreciated that colleague's candour uh, in, in being honest. And I think now, um, you know, my default is to be optimistic and to want to promise the world, but I think I'm a little bit more cautious now in terms of those discussions about I will do my best um, to make this happen, but I, I can't assure it. So that, you know, that that was a failure on my behalf in terms of being too enthusiastic. Mm. And and I did in that instance overpromise and underdeliver. That's a very great answer because I, I never thought that being overenthusiastic was sometimes not a good thing, but, but you're right. It depends on how it is perceived. So thank you for sharing that. It sounds like... Um, the topic, of course, the topics you're studying is fascinating. And I imagine that's what gets you going as a researcher. Uh, but what also makes you get up in the morning and take on being a researcher? What, what's in your environment or your group that is, is very encouraging for you to just get up in the morning and work on what you do? So I've always been a, a teacher and researcher. So I've, I've never had a, a pure... Um, you know, researcher profile in my job. And that's really important to me. So that's sort of a meshing between, uh, you know, the, the world of practice and, and the research world. So um, I suppose, yeah, research translation is the thing that, that gets me going. I love the idea, for example, if we, if we research feedback and we have a sense of what might work, I love then running professional development for medical students uh, and, and for teachers, and then to see whether that has an impact on their subsequent conversations. Hmm. So, yeah, and I, I'm very fortunate where I work in the Department of Medical Education, we have carriage over the MD program as well as educational research. So if you like, we have a, um, a laboratory for, uh -huh. for research, um, but, you know, it's where... Um, understanding the program, you get a sense of what are the problems, what are the sticky issues that allows those questions to bubble up. And then I think, um, you know, it gives the sense that your research is not just for curiosity, that, that in fact it can have an impact on practice. Mm -hmm, that's awesome. Um, one thing that now came to my mind when you mentioned also like the many layers of your career is like you did you made a transition from your physiotherapy background into medical education what was the most challenging part of the transition going from one discipline or field to the other so i think from an identity point of view uh i i loved working as a practitioner <clears throat> i felt um you know i felt that um, joy of working with patients and seeing their changes in terms of function and pain and so I, I did feel a sense of grief when I moved from clinical practice into research. Mm -hmm. um, you know I, I coming from a physiotherapy world which is quite positivist and uh, values the, the sort of science and uh, hypotheses moving into a qualitative world was quite a big step. Mm -hmm. um, and I found it really important, I think, um, to start going to conferences where you, you're mixing with people that, that live in a, 
a, a world of multiple realities and um, I found that quite comforting when I started to find my people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, the third shift, I think moving from the world of physiotherapy into medicine, um, you know, I, I continue to find that bumpy at times because I, um, when, you know, thinking about things like credibility, um, yeah. if I'm teaching a, a group of surgeons, do I call myself an educator? Mm-hmm. Or do I say I'm a, a physiotherapist that's turned educator? And I think um, sometimes if I want to get my message across, I feel like identifying with my educator hat um, is sometimes more persuasive for that particular group. So, I, yeah, I, I continue to battle a little bit around identity and um, how you, yeah, how, how you move depending on the audience that you're working with. Mm-hmm. That's a very insightful piece because um, sometimes we tend to think that once you become a researcher, your identity is established. So it's very refreshing to hear that it's a constant kind of balancing depending on audiences and fields, I guess. So I appreciate that. When, when you mentioned that uh, in physiotherapy it was a very positivist and then you moved into to the, the qualitative world, did you, your PhD was, you, did you use qualitative methods and you learn it in your PhD or when did you learn and how did you learn qualitative research? Yeah, so it was through my PhD and uh, it was actually my supervisor that, that sort of encouraged that shift and uh, gave me a book by um joy higgs who's an australian qualitative researcher and it was just you know a paperback book and i remember sitting down in a cafe and reading that um and yeah i could i could even at the time feel like it was quite a big moment um to be sort of exposed to this different way of thinking and and to sort of know that you've found your world i know that sounds a little bit cliche, but um, I just remember that excitement of, yeah, this, this is sort of, this embraces the way that I think. Yeah. I resonate with you. I'm coming from a very positivist way of thinking and then landed in more the constructivist one. Uh, but it took me a while still, even though I felt, yeah, that's, that feels right. But it was a little bit of a struggle with language, trying to, it's kind of learning a new language from Spanish to English. Like, did you experience the same thing or what was the challenges that you have to go through? Yeah, I think um, it's always diff- difficult to access um, the language of, of those different disciplines. So, um, um, you know, I still joke about the episti blah, blah, <laughs> epistemology. And I often use that when I'm teaching students, when I'm you know teaching a, a lecture on uh, qualitative research. So I think um, the language can be inaccessible uh, and so I suppose when I write, I, I keep that in mind and I, I try to say things as, as simply as I can. How did, what did you tell your students uh, about learning the language? What as, about strategies that maybe have been effective for you? So, I mean, my, my big strategy is just read more. I think mm-hmm. um, if you want to learn to write in a particular discipline i think just reading and reading and reading so it starts to sort of wash over you um is one of the the best methods um i mean i know i sat down with a um a a dictionary on sociology and actually just wrote out definitions to try to get my head around uh, the different 
questions. Um, but yeah, I think a combination of, of focused study, but also just letting that language wash over you. Mm -hmm. That's great. So we talked a little bit about Liz growing up and then becoming a physiotherapist and then a PhD in health professions education. How do you think you have changed as a person since you became a researcher and have traveled all that journey? Again, uh, not a small question. <laughs> um, so I think I have become less linear as a person. You know, I, I think um, as a as a kid growing up, I was fairly tenacious and and quite gold uh, goal driven. Um, like to roll up my sleeves and, and get things done. Mm -hmm. um, I think moving into the qualitative research world and thinking about um, perspectives and multiple realities, I think I am more open. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes I catch myself being definitive, um, <laughs> you know, which, which makes me ask questions about, well, what else could this represent? What else could it be? Am I... Am I pouncing on a hypothesis too early? So, yeah, maybe, maybe it's um, opened me uh, in a way. So I'm, I'm I'm less definitive and less linear. That's good. So, um, what I, one of I have two standard questions towards the end of the interview, and one of them that you might anticipate so far is, uh, what's your next curiosity? So, what are you working on right now, and where are you heading? So I've got a few things that are bubbling away that are interesting me. Um, I mean, one of the things that uh, that we're working on is is looking at different feedback cultures within medicine, mm. and we're using a socio material lens for this particular study. So I've spent a lot of my time looking at conversations between individuals, so between a, a clinician and a trainee. Mm -hmm. And then sort of thinking about how can we then upskill those individuals to have more productive discussions. Mm -hmm. But I suppose what's coming out from this recent project is the, the sea of feedback that, that's around people. And, you know, those performance relevant cues in your environment, um, the political structures, the timetabling, mm -hmm. um, the physical instruments that may be providing that haptic feedback. Um, I'm, so I'm really interested in if you're a learner within a particular environment, what cues can you attend to that are going to help to give yourself a sense of how you're going and, and what good work looks like? Wow, that's fascinating. I really look forward to hear about it. I haven't thought about that using sociomaterial perspectives to study feedback, but that sounds really fascinating. Are you, are you about to publish something or are you still in the data collection and analysis? Yeah, so we're, we're still in the um, data analysis phase. Um, and yeah, so we, we've done an interview-based study for the first phase and we're now um, engaged in an, in an observational study. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay, and, and I want to end this usually with a very light question. Hopefully it is light. Uh, but... I, I like to ask people if let's pretend you didn't have the chance to become a researcher. What do you think you will be doing if you hadn't become a researcher? Mm. Well, I mean, part of me, part of me thinks I, I would have been a clinician 
um, you know, in a hospital or a private practice. I, I don't know. I, I think, um, I don't know. I would love, I mean, I love writing. I, I think, um, oh. yeah, I wonder whether uh, I would have continued down a clinician track and done some writing on the side or, uh, I don't know, it's, a, it's a, an interesting question. Or, or perhaps, um, I mean, teaching is, is the other thing that's always really interested me, um, mm -hmm. whether I would have pursued more of a, a stronger teaching track. Okay. And um, final thing, um, when you're not working, when, when you're done a project or something, how do you um, unwind? In your free, what do you do for free time or hobby? Well, I love the, I'm sitting here looking out at the garden. I, I love to get into the garden and, and uh, have a dig, um, grow things. We've got a, uh, we're really lucky to have um, a, a couple of fig trees, an apricot tree, an apple tree. Oh, nice. Here in the garden. So, yeah, I, I love digging and sort of, I find that very grounding. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm also lucky to do yoga on a Saturday morning, which I do with my two sisters and, um, and friends so again that's tapping into the womanhood and um yeah i just like that that opportunity to get out of your head and and uh feel your feet on the floor that's nice what about your daughters do you do activities what kind of activities do you do with them well the four of them and florence is only 15 months but i can include florence in the conversation so the four <laughs> of them are very keen on soccer really yeah, so we've got three playing competitive soccer and, and Florence is having a, a kick as well. So um, <laughs> particularly in lockdown, when we've had sort of a, a one hour window to get out to the park, um, mm -hmm. that's what we've, be, we've been playing. Oh, that's great. And I, I imagine having four daughters actually makes for a more fun soccer playing. Yeah, we're not far off a team. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. nice. Yeah. Well, Liz, thank you very much for sharing with us uh, all your stories. We appreciated it. it. It was a very enjoyable conversation. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you for the, for the opportunity. Okay, thanks to you. And thank you everyone for listening and we will see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.